Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to a special edition of History Hack. Today is the 18th of June and therefore we will be commemorating the 205th anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo. Alina, are you excited? Yes, of course I am. It's Waterloo. Waterloo. Anyway, no, I did, you know, no, no ABBA, no ABBA and no singing. <laughs> Marcus sing. is like ripping his headphones <laughs> out. Uh, do you know what? We're just going to talk about history because I'm sick of people who don't know anything about history talking about history and getting on my nerves. We all are. Uh, so the people who actually do the research, as in Marcus Cribb, who's a manager at Apsley House, and Zach White, who is our go-to Napoleonic guru, are just going to uh, do what we basically do, which is talk about stuff that we spent years researching and not just read on Twitter. Is that okay with you guys? That sounds perfect. Does it sound like a little bit of Nirvana in the midst of a giant shitstorm? <laughs> Come join our lovely history bubble where, you know, everything's between 1700s and the 1800s and uh, we're just going to talk about why that's important. Yeah, we were saying before we came on air, weren't we, Marcus, that uh, about a week ago we had our lovely little history bubble. Uh, not, not where we sat there and lauded everything that happened no. in history, but where we talked about it in context um, and where we weren't all screamed at and told we were white supremacist assholes who, who hate everyone else. I remember no. those times. They were, they were good times. It, it escalated a, quite quickly, didn't it? It was only about a week ago. <laughs> yeah, it was nice. like, might actually have been the day before yesterday. Anyway, let's commemorate this date because it does need mm. marking and not just from a British sense because we're imperialist fascists wankers oh, or whatever we get called after this uh, so let, yeah exactly this is an important moment in european history and we are going to mark it on the date that it happened so let's start can you guys because we're going to do this for an audience maybe that doesn't know anything about waterloo we're going to talk you talk through the battle uh, and you've given us some uh readings as well of some first-hand testimony so that people can get a better idea of what it was like tell us first uh either one of you how do we get to this point why is there a battle at waterloo and how did we get there so um clicking into mode basically after uh, almost 20 years of multiple coalitions against france and then uh napoleon uh the sixth coalition uh marched into paris meanwhile the duke of wellington's uh anglo uh, british army uh, with allies is marching actually through the Pyrenees into uh, the south of France. So the Spanish ulcer, as it was known, 
almost 10 years of conflict that led uh, Napoleon's army dry, along with the guerrillas, uh, the Portuguese and the Spanish, and uh, actually some other uh, foreign nations that joined. And that led uh, Napoleon's army dry, and eventually the Austrians, the Russians, and the Prussians uh, marched into uh, Paris, and he abdicated. He was sent to uh, the little Isle of Elba, uh, against British advice, thinking it was too close, and uh, he was made uh, the Emperor of Elba. But after about 10 months, uh, during which time he built some hospitals and some roads and did some reforms, uh, he got bored. And uh, we had actually given him, we the Allies, had given him a small army, uh, which is kind of like your facepalm moment. Uh, he draws them in. Um, <laughs> it's just like, oh, why did we do this? Um, he draws yeah, them it's in. only 750 men, though. It's only 750 men, but about... Well, presumably armed with swords and guns, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Heavily armed. Uh, Polish lancers were there um, and some artillery, and they had some ships, and they, they really kind of slightly decorated the ships, looked a bit more like Royal Navy, slipped back and went back to uh, France. Uh, at which point uh, the really obese uh, Louis XVIII kind of looks around the room and goes, right, we need to um, take him, uh, capture him. And uh, he looks around and suddenly steps forward and says, I'll bring him to you in an iron cage. And that happens to be Marshal Ney. Terrible decision. <laughs> Zach has got his mate. head in his hands right now. <laughs> I mean, if I'd, been Louis, if I'd been Louis and I'd looked around that room, of all the people I'd have picked... I wouldn't have turned around to Ney and said, yep, great, you go back to your old master Napoleon who you built your reputation fighting for. I mean, he was called by Napoleon himself the bravest of the brave for a reason, because he's in incredibly brave as a commander. Um, all kinds of controversies about how skilled he actually was. But you, you don't send one of his most loyal supporters to go and arrest him. right-hand man, and Louis gives him a, a royalist army to go down there. So given this army, he goes down to South France. A couple of other uh, of these incidents happen, but basically he, they literally turn coat and, um, and fight for their old emperor. Uh, they march into Paris. Uh, Napoleon comes back uh, to power, though he doesn't uh, recrown himself. So at this point, France has got both a king and an emperor um, going on. And uh, the seven coalitions formed. Actually, most of the allies are down in Vienna, uh, for the Congress of Vienna at the time, and they all agreed to raise really big armies. Uh, Britain uh, knows that it can't uh, raise a really big army so it starts to like, raise funds and support the others. What I find really remarkable about, about this incident is that Napoleon decided to come back at that particular moment because all of the allies were starting to squabble amongst themselves over how they were going to carve up Europe in the wake of the Napoleonic Wars. And the second that he comes back to power and he installs himself in Paris, what are they all doing? They were all meeting in Vienna having these discussions, able to instantly react to the situation and go, you know what, our old enemy's back. Actually, we need to get the band back together. And so that's exactly what they do. And, and then he had this massive problem of, well, I didn't actually want a war because I'm not ready for it yet. It was, I, I just can't see how he expected the strategy of coming back and the Allies not taking issue with it to actually play out. And nothing unites people like a, a common enemy. Uh, it absolutely worked, uh, Zach. And I talk about this quite a bit. Uh, what did Napoleon expect to happen uh, at any one point uh, during this campaign? Uh, Russia starts marching. I think it reaches about the area of the Rhine during the Battle of Waterloo. It's a huge army. Even Sweden's mobilising, Spain's mobilising, Italy. And, um, and all these armies, once they come together and all going to converge, it's, gonna, it's, it's inevitable what's going to happen. My personal feelings is uh, Napoleon's being led by 
his ego at this point. He just doesn't want to sit on a small island, um, but it doesn't work out well for him on that. So, Why Waterloo? This is where they both happen to rock up, or is it strategically important, or is it just a total accident? It's in Belgium, isn't it, for Alina? Because this is not. Yeah, cheers for that. <laughs> yeah, I just thought I'd outline it's that. It's not a train station. When, <laughs> yeah. when you say that, but I was on an HMS Victory tour. Um, oh, in my teenager, I was a precocious teenager, so I knew all about those periods. Um, and the one of the people on the tour, it was an American guy, turned around and said, "So, so what's the story behind?" The bigger context to Trafalgar and, and HMS Victory. The tour guide didn't have a clue. They turned around and said, yeah, it's all to do with um, Waterloo, um, which is um, in Austria. <laughs> As oh, a 15-year-old, I'm standing there doing this kind of head and hands moment, thinking, but you're paid to take people around. Sure. Well, perhaps they're volunteers and perhaps they just didn't read up it. So it's, it's worth kind of saying but yeah, I, it's, it's I've had Belgium. people ask me, is the Battle of Waterloo take place at the train station? So um, that worries me. Um, it can get yes. pretty rough down there on a Saturday night, to <laughs> be fair. Slight, slightly different. Um, not quite 50,000 dead, but maybe, maybe 49. Mm. Um, so um, Napoleon comes back. He's now um, kind of um, Emperor of France, and he actually reintroduces conscription and calls his army back. Um, the Allies are marching, they're forming up. Um, Wellington, with what is always referred to as a British army, actually at the time it was referred to as an English army, uh, but to hammer home, it really was an Allied army. Uh, he's got there um, primarily the Dutch, making up a huge contingent. The Netherlands at the time actually being modern-day Holland and Belgium. Uh, they've taken over the Kingdom of Belgium and the Netherlands. Uh, he's got a British army, but not all of it, because they've just lots of it's just gone off to uh, fight the end of the war. What's the War of eighteen twelve? Uh, but it's eighteen fifteen, and it's still ongoing uh, in Canada and New Orleans. And he's then got um, some other nations uh, joining him uh, there, uh, primarily Nassau and uh, Brunswick. Yeah, I'm really pleased you flagged that, Marcus, because I have this conversation with people constantly, um, particularly on social media, where they want to try and turn. Waterloo into like Agincourt round two or some kind of football match scenario where you know we played the French away and we won three two no just shut up because (laughs) (laughs) you go sorry have at it (laughs) because Wellington's army as Marcus said is an Anglo-Dutch army well it's actually an Anglo-Dutch and German army but only a third of the troops that he commanded were from the British Isles and actually a third of those were Irish. Irish Um, and people have kind of been doing a big push on on social media about we need to recognise the Irish role within Waterloo but actually they they form part of the the British contingent Um, there's King's German Legion in there as well and as you said Nassau troops, Dutch um, and then there's this whole other army that people try and conveniently forget about which is the Prussians under Marshal Blücher Um, What's the fit of Marcus? Something like 120,000? About, well, initially about 120,000. I think by the time they reach Waterloo, it's closer to 50 to 70,000 um, because after Lingy, which we'll come on to, um, they are both mauled and quite a few fairly desert because they're basically um, a third of the Prussian army are militia and they joined up minimal training and had marched literally from Berlin to the French border. So um, they're not really expecting the hard conflict that actually comes in. Short but sharp, these uh, battles. 
Um, so yes. I guess what you're saying is this is not an imperialist British battle. This is a European battle yeah. um, against French imperialism. Yeah. I would argue so. I think it's something we can be proud of that we stopped another long drawn out war mm. um, over, it's hard to calculate in total, but well over 60 to 65,000 uh, men are, are killed. Um, tens, hundreds of thousands, really more wounded. Well, that's uh, massive, isn't it? So put that into context. The opening day of the Battle of the Somme, twenty thousand dead, hmm. and that's uh, the blackest day in the history of the British. Waterloo's and it's it's these really hard to uh, calculate at the time. Um, mm. You know, some of the figures: who runs away, who's wounded, and dies later, and who's yeah. killed on the day. Uh, but about sixty thousand in a day. Yeah, so um, that's three times more bloody than the opening day. Of the Battle of the Somme, so this is not a small, like imperial battle that we forget about. This is a massive, in this its is, own context. Isn't I it? mean, the battlefield afterwards was like a slaughterhouse of human remains, um, and we'll definitely come on to what the Duke of Wellington saw, thought. But it it was just littered with human bodies and really um, experienced hardened soldiers that have been fighting for 10 years it really broke them to see this it was it was devastating sight it's horrible Zach you wanted to add something yeah I mean it's not the biggest battle that happens during this period you've got things like the Battle of the Nations where mm. people talk of figures like half a million men um, being involved in in that battle and even then we can't quite be certain when Napoleon went into Russia um, with his Grande Armée in 1812 that had half a million troops in it just within his own force um, but what's really striking about Waterloo is, as Marcus says, you've got all of these people who die, but it's in an incredibly confined area, even for battles, battlefields of this time. The position is something like three miles wide and a mile deep. It's, wow. it's such so a compact... Using that same analogy again, oh, I'm testing myself now, the battlefront on the opening day of the Battle of the Somme. Uh, I want to say 14.02 miles for the Fourth Army front shoot me if i'm wrong uh yeah so you can walk around the entire uh, circumference of the battle of waterloo in a, in a long morning and you can see from the british position napoleon's for his headquarters so if he was riding around on his white horse the common british allied uh, army soldiers would have been able to see napoleon uh it really is quite a condensed battlefield and it's a very narrow uh, but very very shallow valley i wouldn't even really call it a valley but it just dips away and yeah. uh, inside it's typical of, of Belgium in that it's flat. Yeah, I mean, it's got very kind of subtle rolls in the ground. Um, it's interesting we were talking about that whole um, coalition thing. I was talking to a, a veteran recently, Ben Mead from Waterloo Uncovered, who, was, who made this really nice analogy that I think really helps to kind of understand it, which is that the Allied side at Waterloo is a bit like a 19th century NATO, except that they're facing France. Because that really kind of captures oh, the international flavour. Because mm. you've got the Prussians and they're drawn from all of the central German states. You've got Britain, Netherlands. Um, so it's, it's a really diverse battle. And it's, it's, there's this big debate about, is this a clash of empires? And in a way, yes, it kind of is. Because Napoleon had always been about building his empire. Um, and with peace not being an option for him in 1815, going back into the Netherlands, was partly about strategy in that if he went into the Netherlands, could hit the two armies that were deployed there, the, the Anglo-Dutch army under Wellington, the Prussian army under Blücher, if he could hit, hit each one in turn, defeat each one in turn, 
he would then be able to occupy Brussels. That would also knock the Dutch out of the war. That therefore gave him greater territory. He could sell that to his population back in France, in Paris, and say, look, I'm rebuilding the empire, restoring France to its former glory. But at the same time, that would potentially have made the other allies in the coalition pause. Because with Britain having had its army badly mauled, Britain wouldn't be able to lend any troops to the fight. And so Russia and Austria would potentially, and there's a massive debate about this, but would potentially have turned around and said, actually, you know what? Perhaps we do want a separate peace with Napoleon. Perhaps we do want to bide our time and see how things pan out. You've, you've put 1815 into context for us, but just round out the campaign for us before we start on the actual battle. Yes. Um, so Napoleon crosses the border into Belgium uh, and famously uh, the Duke was at the Duchess of Richmond's ball uh, that evening along with the Prince of Orange from the Netherlands and many other uh, um, allies such as the uh, Duke of Brunswick and uh, this is where he famously uh, has a letter come in and it's, it's a really romantic scene you see it in all your Jane Austen era uh, romanticism uh, it, because it is the ladies dancing in all their dresses and the men in their uniforms but Wellington gets this letter, goes into a side room, and he's meant to have said, oh, he's humbugged me by God, he's stolen 24 hours march from me. Because they were expecting Napoleon, but they just didn't know when. Um, Wellington had even ordered his own ball uh, for two weeks later to commemorate the Battle of Victoria. So they, they march uh, very quickly. He's actually ring-fenced uh, two areas, Wellington. Uh, he's Cachibra, which is uh, literally the forearms of the crossroads, uh, down a bit further south. And then he knows that there's a ridge called Mont Saint-Jean, uh, the mountain of St. Jean, uh, and that's, that's it's, we're saying it's a very gentle slope, but it's pretty much one of the few defensible areas between the Belgian border and Brussels. So um, they go down and they fight against Ney again. This is the Anglo-Allied army, uh, Ney again, at Catribar. Meanwhile, the Prussians under Marshal uh, Blücher are marching, and they engage Napoleon's main force at the Battle of Ligny on the same day. This is the 16th of June, so just before Waterloo. There's two battles fought. Yeah, I mean, this is, it's a pretty ballsy strategy. By, that's not a technical term, but it is a ballsy strategy by Napoleon. Because what he does is he looks at the layout of these two armies, Wellington's and, and Bluka's, and sees that they're spread out over quite wide areas because they need to be supplied. But then he looks at their lines of communication, their supply lines, and realises that they run in opposite directions to each other. So Wellington has to keep an eye on the communications with the Channel ports, which is where he's getting all of his reinforcements and all of his um, communications disorders and food supplies from. But the, the Prussians, they're looking back towards Germany and the kind of the Rhine region. And he tries to use his army as a kind of a, a massive battery round to force his way between these, these two allied armies and, and make them kind of swing backwards, um, like, you know, kind of force open a set of doors. And I have to say it very nearly worked. Credit, to, credit where credit's due to Napoleon, he nearly pulled it off because as he used Ney to kind of occupy the British at Catrebar, at the same time, he fought the Prussians at Ligny and crucially beat them. The, the Prussian army was badly mauled. It wasn't shattered. It wasn't completely routed. Um, and there's a lot of debate about whether or not the, the point where it all falls apart for Napoleon during the campaign is on that evening at Ligny on the 16th, where there isn't this kind of vigorous follow-up. Um, and actually the, the debate is probably kind of swinging towards actually it's probably the sensible thing to do because there's still enough cohesion within the Prussian army to turn around and, and bite him for it. Um, 
it's it's that that evening that really becomes crucial because rather than pull back towards Germany, which might have been the logical thing for the Prussians to do, instead what they did is they pulled back north so that they could stay in touch with Wellington's force. Um, and and on the seventeenth, what Napoleon didn't do was kind of follow up with the energy that had been characteristic of him in a lot of his campaigns earlier in his career, and then suddenly turn on the British, encircle them and crush them. And then that gave Wellington the opportunity to pull back to Mont Saint-Jean, occupy that position over the course of the 17th, ready to kind of set up the battle on the 18th, once Blucher confirmed that, come what may, he was going to march to Wellington's position and support him. Because without that, there was no point in fighting at Waterloo. And so this big debate about whether or not did the Prussians save Wellington at Waterloo? Well, no, because that was always part of the strategy. The Prussians were always going to come in, hit Napoleon on the flank, and, and try and effectively do to him what he had been trying to do to them. I think it's fair to say that Napoleon of 1815 is not the same Napoleon of like 1805 and the earlier campaigns. He's, he's lost a lot of energy. Uh, a lot of historians try to say what kind of stomach ailments he's got. But he, he basically is in a bit of pain. Uh, middle age has hit him a lot earlier than it's hit some of the others. Um, what Zach was saying about Blucher's army going up um, to the north rather than to the east, actually Blucher, who was well into his 70s, was actually basically like knocked um, basically unconscious in a field because he's been leading cavalry charges. He's been drawing his own sabre and going straight in and shot off his horse uh, at least three times during the campaign. So he's got this real, like, second win, Blucher. He's still going, whereas Napoleon's a bit more kind of langy at the back. Um, he doesn't have that energy. And that um, we, Napole- um, Napoleon's just famous for his big manoeuvres, and that's something that Wellington especially is expecting to be outflanked. He's sending thousands of troops to the west, so he's not outflanked by the sea. And it doesn't happen. Napoleon comes on in quite a same old style, uh, straight on. So... Uh, it is interesting how uh, the commanders, which is easier to focus on, um, but how the commanders have really developed and some have you know, gained experience and uh, others are kind of, they're not in their prime anymore. And uh, the three three men that kind of encapsulate the uh, campaign, there are so many, so many commanders to talk about. I'd really never like to forget the uh, the common soldier who's made you know the sacrifice, but um, the three uh, main commanders are very different points of their life indeed. Um, they basically they, they move on to the ridge of Mont Saint-Jean and something that actually um, we've realised very recently uh, through doing some exhibitions is the ridge of Mont Saint-Jean has a farmhouse at the bottom, well it's got a few farmhouses, uh, but one of the farmhouses slightly off to the east uh, was occupied uh, by uh, the Duke of Marlborough during one of his earlier campaigns and he'd written that this is probably the best place to defend Brussels from the south. And Wellington had read that book on his way out to India. And so we're not sure now whether Wellington had kind of consciously remembered this and gone, that, that's the spot. He had a good, really good eye for uh, terrain. So he'd probably seen that ridge and thought of it himself. Or whether it was just back in the subconscious and he was looking for it. Or if it was a complete coincidence and Wellington didn't read that chapter. And uh, it was just these two great British dukes and generals had uh, chosen the same ridge, which seems unlikely. But uh, they're now onto this very gentle ridge on the night of the 17th and the dawn of the 18th of June 1815. Didn't Wellington say that he had a look at the position um, in 1814 at some point? Yeah, when he was surveying forward fortifications through the region. Yeah, um, he'd actually noted down in his uh, diary as being a, a good position. 
Um, he was commander of the army of occupation and was inspecting the forward uh, positions and fortifications. And it pretty much written that this is a good area to uh, to do a defensive battle. Yeah. So there's all sorts of layers there of that ridge because it's it, it's there's not much for miles around. It's gentle, rolling Belgian, pretty countryside. Uh, it doesn't have big hills and cliffs to defend. Go on. I want you to talk about hemorrhoids, Zach. You want me to talk about hemorrhoids? Well, only they are Napoleon's hemorrhoids, yeah, exactly. I hasten to add. Yeah. Zach, specifically, poor old Napoleon. His backside's giving him jip, isn't it, before the battle? It, it really is. Um, there's, there's been a lot of debate about this, but it seems, from the sources, that Napoleon had really bad hemorrhoids Ouch. during the Waterloo campaign. Yeah, which, I mean, for people to bear in mind... He's on horseback, or he's meant to be on horseback a lot of the time. And that limited his ability to be on horseback. It takes a lot of, uh, spends a lot of time riding around in a carriage, because it's obviously more comfortable than sitting on a horse all day. Um, and so it's thought that that probably played a part in how, how Napoleon kind of dealt with the command during the whole campaign, but particularly at Waterloo, because the night before he has uh, apparently quite a, quote, prolonged treatment for his hemorrhoids. Um, Ouch. What treatment you could have, I'm not entirely sure, but I'm not sure I particularly want to know either. Um, his medicine back then was at best awful and disgusting. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I mean, their, their strategy for if you break an arm is to basically cut it off um, because they, they don't have the, the ability to, to set legs properly um, in this period. So yeah, Really unpleasant surgery. Um, that's a discussion for another day, though. But he, his mental state seems to be all over the place as well, to be honest with you. Um, I know Ed Koss was trying to determine with some army psychologists, the US army psychologists, whether he had PTSD, and they didn't find any evidence of PTSD. They found bucket loads of proof that he was a narcissistic kit, but that doesn't particularly surprise anybody. Um, <laughs> Quote there, narcissistic Quote. kit. Quote. Technical term. Technical term, yeah. I'm going to... Use that, Zach, in future talks and tours. I hope that's okay. <laughs> um, so, guys, you've taken us to the brink of battle. So, start for us. Tell us what happens on the 18th of June, 1815. Go on, Zach, you can start. The first thing that they don't do is start fighting. And there's a few reasons for that. Uh, one, it's been raining, absolutely chucking it down all, most of the day before, um, and certainly during a lot of the night. Um, and so both armies are very cold, very wet, and they're very hungry. And there are some really interesting accounts that on the, the morning after, the morning before the battle, so on the morning of the 18th, troops are actually told to just go out and find some food because the, the army has struggled to kind of cope with this very rapid change of s- supply situation. And as a result... You know, they've had four days in which to try and get their head around the fact that they're not going to their supply, standard supply depots. It's all got to go to the front line, which has moved significantly. Um, and so they go out in, in search of food, and there's this massive debate about how crucial that delay was because the French guns didn't start opening fire until 11.30 in the morning. So effectively, half the day's gone before the battle even kicks off. Now, there's a big thing about whether or not it's all to do with the ground and the fact that it's, it's been raining the night before and if you wait a little bit and the ground dries out, you can move up the artillery much more easily, the army can manoeuvre. And um, few issues with that. One of them is that if you've ever actually been to Waterloo and you tried walking 
for three steps in these ploughed fields, you'll know that it's clay soil. And oh. the, the second it starts to rain, you Preaching just, to the just World War the One choir here. Mm. <laughs> exactly. The, yeah. the, um, the difference to try to put it into like World War One context for you, um, they're, they, they're wearing shoes, not boots. Um, most of the guys don't have uh, great coats. The French army's got wearing their great coats. The British army just got blankets, but also they're carrying their life on their back. Um, they don't have a supply depot where they can leave their knapsacks. So they are carrying everything. They've got a knapsack and typically a, a bread bag along with their ammunition. So it's incredibly hard going. If you leave your pack, it's going to get stolen. Um, so they are walking through this thing. And uh, especially for the French who are on the offensive, it's, it's really tough. It's going to become much more tough. Um, so you've mentioned... 11.30, the Grand Battery starts its bombardment. Marcus? Yes. So 11.30, um, Napoleon forms up most of his guns and he's forming um, it's what is termed as the Grand Battery. It's, it's impossible to know exactly how many guns, but we say about 50. Uh, during this time, we mustn't forget the Prussians, our allies, and they're marching. The longer Napoleon's waiting over this morning, he has a, he has a long breakfast. Wellington gets up, uh, and, and writes orders and is very busy. Blue, uh, Blue mar- and the Prussians are marching. So every delay is really, really helpful. Uh, and the opening salvo, uh, about 11 o'clock, uh, they, there's, there's two main farmhouses underneath the ridge of Hougamont and Le Haissant. Uh, Jerome Bonaparte, um, Napoleon's pretty feckless um, uh, younger brother, he's led to lead a diversion and attack Le Haissant which has got uh, about 800 Nassau um, skirmishers, plus about 300 members of the light companies of uh, the British Guards. And they really make a name for themselves. And uh, they're defending there. And it's meant to be a diversion. Jerome's not very good, and they draw in more and more troops. Uh, and then meantime, uh, the bulk of uh, Derland's corps, which is one of the corps commanders, starts marching uh, forwards towards uh, the slopes near Le Haissant. I had been over many a field of battle, but with the exception of one spot at New Orleans and in the breach of Badahoff, I had never seen anything to compare with what I saw. At Waterloo, the whole field, from right to left, was a mass of dead bodies. In one spot, to the right of La Haissant, the French cuirassiers were literally piled on each other. Many soldiers, not wounded, lying under the horses. Others, fearfully wounded, occasionally with the horses struggling on their wounded bodies. The sight was sickening. All over the field you saw officers, and as many soldiers as were permitted to leave the ranks, leaning and weeping over some dead or dying brother or comrade. The battle was fought on a Sunday, the 18th of June, and I repeated to myself a verse from the Psalms of that day. A thousand shall fall beside thee, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall come nigh thee. So that was Major Smith, wasn't it, Zach? It was. Um, just something to pick up on there about what Marcus was saying about um, the artillery bombardment and what I was mentioning earlier about the mud and the rain. That's actually one area where the the weather does have a really obvious impact in that the, the, the standard technique for artillery during this period was to do something called grazing, which is where you try and bounce the, the spherical cannonballs across the landscape. But because it's, it's not a bit like bowling happen. a cricket ball bouncing in front of the crease. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And so rather than bouncing 
what happens is that this this shot just hits the ground and and keeps on going. In, in, in this, let me start again. The the artillery shot hits the ground and just stays there. It gets kind of sucked into the mud, and so the artillery bombardment actually does less damage than it could have done during the day. Not not to say that it doesn't do a huge amount of damage. Um, but it's just how much worse this could have been for the Anglo-Dutch army in that because a lot of the, the projectiles kind of get sucked into the ground, they, they don't have as much impact as they could have done. However, the other side of it is they do take... Uh, they, the, the Anglo-Allied uh, army um, have a lot less artillery uh, than the French. Uh, the majority of their forces behind the ridge... Um, Wellington's often thought of as being quite a defensive general. Uh, I, I generally disagree with that because he's in the Peninsula War, it goes on quite a lot of the offensive. But at Waterloo, he's on the defensive um, very much so. He's on the reverse slope. But that army are, you know, they are learning to lob their shells over and try to do different things. And the Peninsula veterans, especially, say, this is the hardest pounding, uh, is the quote that they've ever experienced. And it, and it causes some really, really terrible wounds. I mean, the. Um, the range of a musket back then is about 80 yards, but the artillery pieces are still quite like an, over a mile. Uh, but they're going subsonic, so this thing, these artillery rounds are coming towards you, and you can you can see them. Uh, and I think that's something that's just really terrible about the warfare is you'll see the artillery basically manoeuvre a mile away, point itself at you. You can't do anything about it. It's gonna you'll see the flash of the rounds, and then you'll basically have um, a split second and some of the forces are told to stand in line um very famously at the top of the ridge uh, near wellington's elm tree there's the 27th uh, inskilling uh, irish regiment and they're forming a square because there's french cavalry swirling around them and they they nearly all wiped out it's like 90 percent casualties and they die in square and uh, they just have to stand there and take it it's really terrible whereas most of wellington's troops where they can he actually orders them to lie down and um take um, take some sort of uh, form of cover at least um, so it's not all quite you know red line blue line uh, never mind thousands of different uniforms that are really within the allied army uh, there's a little bit more going on but the 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 uh, casualties and the wounds um, for both sides are really horrific especially given the medicine at the time yeah i mean the next really crucial phase of the battle is what was meant to be napoleon's main attack um this, this is meant to be kind of his big hammer blow. He sends forward an entire corps, which we're talking about something like 12,500 men in one single gigantic kind of battering ram that smash their way through the Allied centre and, and, and sweep, the arm, sweep the Anglo-Dutch army away. And it's a tactic they had used a lot. It's not something that was unique to Waterloo. The, the French system was built around the idea you, you have an army that's a conservative counteracting the, the, the lack of training, the lack of professionalism, and the lack of experience. And so one way to do that was to kind of group these men together and just send them forward. Now that meant that they took a lot of punishment from artillery fire, but it created this kind of irresistible force. It generated that momentum that was designed to just sweep um, the other force out of the way. And it, quite often it worked, in fairness. It's, it's quite an effective tactic. Never worked against the British at any point um, during the Peninsula War, the, the conflict before... Um, Napoleon's first abdication. You kind of think, well, wouldn't Napoleon have learned something from that? And that's that's a massive question. Because certainly he was warned by his generals who had faced Wellington and said, look, look, the usual methods don't necessarily work. He dismissed that advice. So he sends these um, this twelve and a half thousand strong force in, 
and they they almost do it. They almost break the Allied centre. But just as they're starting to force the, um, the troops that they're facing on the Allied ridge back, they get swamped because pretty much all of the Allied heavy cavalry comes in from the front, from the side, and just cuts them to pieces. And it's a, an incredibly timed, well-timed attack by the Allied force because they, they hit the French just as they're slightly kind of out of order because they've come across a road, gone through a, through a hedge, and so they're out of shape, they're out of formation. And so they don't have that ability to kind of respond quickly, form square, which is that typical defence case cavalry, um, or even huddle together. And you've got these incredible accounts where people are kind of trying, officers are trying to force their men into line. And the next thing they know, the person that they've just shoved forward ends up dropping dead because somebody's sabred him and they haven't even seen it coming. These are huge heavy cavalry. Um, and famously, you've got the uh, Household Brigade and the Union Brigade and the Union Brigade as part of that have um, the Scots Greys and it has that beautiful famous painting by Lady Butler of Scotland Forever of these um, Scottish cavalrymen on their uh, grey white horses charging forwards and they actually capture or they capture an eagle and then there's another, another eagle captured straight afterwards the, the famous French imperial standards and they capture two of those and uh, take those take those back which normally are right in the middle of a regiment so it's where the fiercest fighting is towards the regimental headquarters uh, and this you know they are cavalry it's very medieval um, style they've got long straight um, swords and they're bearing down them and slashing and they have found some of the skeletons and there are terrible wounds that are going to be inflicted during this these are heavy swords with very strong men on large fast horses bearing down upon uh, the French who are out of formation and they barely able to defend themselves so um, they decimate um, a huge wing of uh, Napoleon's uh, army unfortunately uh, kind of a typical cavalry style they kind of overreach go on uh, kind of exhaust themselves up the slope and all through the mud and they're there then set upon um, by um, the French cavalry famously his lancers the lancers are quite good at countering other cavalry and then the, Fre and then the uh, French cavalry fall upon them in turn uh, really damaging um, the British uh, heavy cavalry who are not completely but largely withdrawn from being an effective fighting force for the rest of the battle. So uh, they, they do a fantastic job and then just keep overgoing. And there's a lot of debate, but it seems to be that the red mist is down, but also their leadership um, is questionable through these kind of aristocratic officers who want to kind of go for glory. And they're quite hard to rein back in, quite literally. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, quite a devastating part of the battle on both sides. When do the infantry get involved? Well, throughout. Um, it, there's so many um, depictions of them uh, holding the ridge. So all through the day, uh, the French are trying to do different attacks. And I don't think anyone's actually got a, an exact account of how many times uh, they go up the ridge because where one army's kind of going, oh sorry, one corps going up and then reforming is it another assault. Meanwhile, pretty much constantly over at uh, um, you've got the guards and the Nassau troops uh, fighting uh, in uh, what can almost be depicted as like a medieval siege warfare come Rourke's Drift of um, the French who eventually get inside the chateau, which is a, a four-walled farmhouse, and they eventually get inside. Uh, famously, uh, the British guards managed to close the gates um, behind uh, the French. 
they block it up and I think there's somewhere over 30 uh, French uh, soldiers are within there and they're all killed in hand-to-hand combat except for uh, well, a drummer boy, they think. And the rest are uh, butchered in hand-to-hand combat, bayonet to bayonet. So that's ongoing. And in the middle, uh, near Le Hesson, and that's a farmhouse that's held right by the road uh, by King's German Legion, so Hanoverian uh, soldiers. And uh, that's captured right uh, towards the end of the battlefield once they've uh, run out of ammunition. So, uh, and that's also captured through hand-to-hand fighting, forcing them out of the farmhouse. So because of the range, mostly of the muskets, so, uh, famously you've got your infantry, uh, 95th Rifles, and uh, King's German Legion armed with the, uh, the Baker Rifle, which has got three times the range. Um, but 80 yards, I mean, you, you don't have a chance if people are starting to run around, uh, which isn't typically a tactic, but when you're getting into these houses, you've got one shot and then it's hand-to-hand. So some of the areas, it's heavy pressure, especially on those two farmhouses. Up on the ridge, it really um, peaks and flows until right at the end. And uh, meanwhile, off to the east, you have the, uh, the Prussians. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What becomes increasingly crucial over the course of the battle is that the longer things play out, the more Prussian troops start to arrive. And they, they seem to arrive at really crucial moments. I've been having a lot of discussions with people about um, the, the, the exact timing because for another attack um, on the, the Allied left flank, the, the Prussians seem to come in at exactly the right moment. And that seems to cause a lot of confusion. And what you have is essentially two corps. One corps ends up effectively feeding straight into providing reinforcements for Wellington's front line and kind of relieving the pressure on his left flank to allow him to move other units to reinforce the centre. But at the same time, you have a really vicious fight for a village called Plans Noir, which is in kind of the right rear of Napoleon's right flank. Um, In a really kind of, it puts him in a really vulnerable position. And so rather than being able to feed more troops into the fight against Wellington's force, he has to constantly be looking over his shoulder at what's happening at Plans Noir. And the fighting goes on all day. You know, you've got, uh, it all centres particularly around quite a, what today is quite a beautiful looking square um, and a church. And you've got soldiers on both sides fighting over this church as it's burning down around them. Um, it's really vicious fighting. Um, and, and it becomes crucial in terms of just holding back the French long enough to allow the reinforcements to feed in at huge human cost. Let's, let's not forget that. Um, but yeah, um, 
incredible, incredibly vicious fighting. You've referenced a couple of times now the vicious fighting. Marcus, you've given us, we've got some testimony, haven't we, about the battlefield. Our situation now is truly awful. Our men were falling by dozens every fire. About this time, a large shell fell just in front of us, and while the fuse was burning out, we were wondering how many of us it would destroy. When it burst, about 70 men were either killed or wounded by it. The portion which came to my share was a piece of rough cast iron about the size of a horse bean, which took up its lodging in my left cheek. The blood ran copiously down inside my clothes and made me rather uncomfortable. Our poor old captain was horribly frightened and several times came to me to drop us something to keep his spirits up. Towards the close of the day, he was cut in two by a cannon shot. One of our poor fellows, having received a desperate wound in the forehead, left us and thought he was going to the rear. But blinded by the blood which was streaming down his face, he was actually rushing into the thickest of the battle, calling out loudly and most piteously for relief. He met the cuirassiers who were again advancing and the foremost of them cut the poor fellow down with a sword and the rest rode over him. So who have we just heard? That's Sergeant Morris, who um, it's quite nice to hear from because he's um, an NCO, he's not a, a general or an officer and most of the depictions of the battle normally come from their accounts. So it's quite nice to hear, um, though it's a terrible uh, account, you know, he's, he's talking about men being blinded by the blood and being cut down. And uh, he, seeing his own officer, who obviously he's going to have a huge amount of affection for, uh, being killed later on. So uh, it shows that the casualty rates also of some of the regiments are incredibly high. Um, that they're actually having to merge with the regiment next to them because they've gone below 50% strength during the battle. This is largely um, from the French artillery, uh, but also there are then uh, French cavalry charges and the, the effectiveness of uh, musketry when it gets up close because you are firing at less than 100 metres uh, a volley from that is devastating and uh, causes um, horrible scenes but also horrible injuries uh, as well the uh, British set up a field hospital just to the rear uh, which is uh, Mont Saint-Jean farm they will have stretcher bearers effectively going out and bringing people back uh, to that hospital and inside there they will actually have surgeons. Every regiment actually had a surgeon and hopefully two assistant surgeons uh, acting and a few officers actually bring their own doctors and uh, they're bringing people back there. And it, it's a really terrible scene. It's a beautiful cobbled uh, farmyard even today with a little well and a little pond. And uh, in that, that pond in the well instantly just filled with uh, amputated limbs and the dead and the dying and all the, they read about how the cobbles are almost impossible to walk over because of the slippery blood. Uh, today, it's a museum to the medical corps uh, that were there and also a uh, brewery and bistro. It's a really beautiful uh, place if anyone visits. Uh, go and buy some beer and some gin and uh, enjoy the museum. But Did you say it, gin? It's got distillery there now they've set up. Uh, Waterloo beer. I'm not even a beer drinker, but that beer is delicious. I'm not paid to say that. It is genuinely tasty. Um, it's a big, a big fan of that. But they've set up a distillery. Uh, I think you can hire it for weddings. And... Um, as history buffs, uh, I think it's quite an incredible one. But also go and uh, raise, a, raise a pint to uh, all those that would have suffered there on that day. Uh, it was quite since. Zach? Um, but what's really interesting about the farm is, as you say, the, the limbs just by digging around the site and they fell into the gutter. And it's quite interesting you can match them and just kind of the, the gutter was just filled with the, these piles of limbs. And it's really interesting in terms of how people treated those limbs because they, in effect, just became rubbish once they've been chopped off there was no use for them they were just kind of thrown away 
But as you say, Marcus, I mean, the, the wounds were horrendous. I, one that really strikes me is Cavalier Mercer's description of a horse's head being blown apart by an artillery shot, literally an inch, um, absolutely shattered, skulls covered in blood and brains. It's, it's vile. Um, it just shows that really what it must have been like to, to stand there and just have to take the punishment and not be able to do anything about it. And I, I think that's a really important point to stress that the battles depicted through some of the most beautiful military history paintings I've ever seen. Uh, I still think it's one of the most important battles in history. But the people that stood there and took that punishment on both sides, French, British, but allies and Prussians and all the nations in between, because even within the British army, you would have had people that come and joined. Uh, all these different nations, it would have been an incredibly brave feat to have stood there and to have not taken a step to the rear or to have ducked for cover uh, when you ordered to stand. And uh, of those 50,000 deaths, you know, not only how many are preventable if Napoleon didn't return, but how many would have been preventable if they're using slightly more modern tactics. Um, it, you know, it's impossible to know. But um, yeah, their bravery uh, is something that um, is worthy of note as well. So guys, in the next phase of the battle, the French are very much um, on the front foot, aren't they? They really are. I mean, you... There's a lot of discussion about why this next phase happens in the way that it does. But the, what essentially happens is that Marshal Ney sees or thinks he sees, the story goes that he thinks he sees um, Wellington start to pull back some of his troops. And so that's often said as, uh, used as the explanation behind it. There's a lot of debate about whether or not he could have seen that. But essentially what happens is the vast majority of the French cavalry just gets hurled at the, the Allied position between the farms of Hougoumont and the Haysan in a series of charges. And it ends up being a complete waste of time. Over about two hours, between about 4 and 6 p.m., there are all kinds of estimates about this. But huge numbers of, of horsemen are sent in to try and shake the morale of the army, possibly pin them down, but crucially to try and break some of these regiments and, and make them run. And kind of punch through that way. And it doesn't work for the simple reason that you, there's a defence against cavalry, which is to form square, and that's essentially a, a hollow square, four ranks, front two ranks, fixed bayonets and kneel. So you've got this hedge of steel spikes, if you like, around four sides of a square that are just firing um, in, in echelon after one another, in this kind of hailstorm of bullets. And the, the staff officers within the British Army are really intelligent in terms of how these squares are positioned, and so they make sure that the troops are positioned in kind of like a, a chessboard formation. So there are gaps between them that the French have to kind of go through, and yet they aren't able to get close enough to start to attack these squares and try and break them. And, and it ends up being a complete, completely futile waste of, of men. They, it, it's like uh, waves crashing around a beach defence of rocks. They just kind of crash around. They can't get through. I think during the entirety of the Peninsula War, only two infantry squares were ever broken. And nearly both those times were where actually the, the dead horses kind of fell into the square and knocked the men over and they charged behind. Uh, this doesn't happen um, at uh, Waterloo. And they kind of like the, the French, like you've got the cuirassiers, their famous big uh, breastplates and helmets. And they're kind of impotently trying to do a bit of a sword fight with a bayonet and then they're just being shot off their horse uh, and the horses also the men are told to sh um, shoot the horses because then the men the cavalrymen are, um, uh, are kind of useless without it and so uh, there's actually written that there's piles and piles of dead and dying horses and then cavalrymen on top of it so 
uh, it really takes uh, the energy out of the French attack. But also for the French infantry seeing behind it, the French uh, cavalry are thought of as being particularly uh, elite. You've got the cuirassiers, you've got uh, Polish lancers, you've got um, some of them being the bodyguard of the emperor and the empress. And they're being uh, thrown up this slope and uh, killed off in huge waves. So it would have been a huge uh, morale destroyed to anyone witnessing it, let alone, God forbid, uh, experiencing it too. During this time, uh, the Prussians are coming in. Uh, they're actually in and out of the town of Plants-Noir, and uh, Napoleon's forced to send in the young guard. So the Imperial Guard, uh, which we always think of uh, in our heads of actually being the old guard with the bearskins, uh, but actually that's a small branch of it. There's the middle guards, and there's actually the young guard. The young guard are kind of like a skirmish force. Uh, there's a, there's a huge amount of them. So he sends them into the town of uh, Plants-Noir as well. Um, Napoleon hates uh, committing his imperial guard, he holds them right back. And so eventually even they are actually forced out of the town and Blücher and his Prussians are uh, moving up um, towards the British. And it all nearly goes horribly wrong. Well, it depends on perspective, but it, for the Allies it all nearly goes horribly wrong regardless. Because as you mentioned earlier, Marcus, the, the troops in La Haison, the, the farm in the centre of the Allied position, King's German Legion, run out of ammunition. And to their credit, they stayed until the point where they ran out of ammunition. They didn't wait until they had a couple of rounds left and then pulled out. They, they fired every shot and then they fought their way out with bayonets. And very yeah, few seem to have actually got out alive. onto these Baker rifles and they, uh, they're actually witnessed. And the, uh, the Prince of Orange, uh, who's the, uh, one of the Allied commanders, uh, he sends in some more King's German Legion to try to relieve them. But he actually sends them in line rather than in square. And uh, cavalry uh, come in from part of this attack, uh, and they actually see them. They actually witness them quite away that there's infantry walking towards the line and fall upon them. And I think it's it could be three, but I think it's four battalions. Uh, Zach will correct me. Um, are, are mown down uh, basically by these uh, French cavalry, and it's where uh, the Prince of Orange um, gets his uh, reputation. What everyone from the aristocracy called him the Young Frog because apparently he had a really big forehead. Um, but by this point, his soldiers now will always call him Silly Billy because he went and got his men killed. So, guys, have we reached the point now where the Prussians arrive? The Prussians are on the scene. The Prussians have always been kind of there. They're just further out of uh, view. Um, it's something to worth saying that um, they are fighting for a lot of the day, but it's at the back of the town. And by this point, they are forced to fetch out of the town and they're starting to march in. So much so that there's uh, stories that they're firing upon the French flank. And the French think it's their own forces that have turned upon them. So it leads to a huge amount of confusion. And um, about this time, I think, to, for the narrative, um, Napoleon realises that the Prussians are there and he's got to do one last desperate gamble and a final attack with his middle and uh, old guard. And uh, I don't know if Zach wants to pick up the story. Yeah, so as, as the Prussians are feeding in, um, as try and do something to, to force the, um, the Anglo-Dutch army back. And his only choice really the only thing he's got left is to commit the imperials in this last kind of do or die attempt to smash this way through which he's able to do much more effectively because la Haison had fallen and so he was able to put artillery in that farmhouse for a brief time before they end up all being shot um to fire on the the english um lines much more effectively at a much closer range and do over this and everybody kind of wants the honor of having beaten the imperial guard um, it's often said that they fall on Maitland's brigade, which consisted of the English guard. So you have kind of guard versus guard. Um, it's thought that actually the crucial moment ends up being when the first 52nd, a light infantry unit, 
without orders, just kind of swings out and hits the flank of this guard attack. But one way or another, uh, you have this incredibly emotive moment, which I think is going to be described um, in, in the next extract that we're going to listen to, where Wellington turns around to Maitland's brigade and, and actually gives the orders in person and either says, now Maitland, now is your time, or says, up guards and atom. Um, one way or another, they, the, the troops who've been lying down at this point to protect themselves from artillery fire stand up, they deliver their volleys and then charge and it forces the French, for one reason or another, the army, it just rounds. Um, Wellington, uh, if, he's, if he's anything, he's A, brave, and B, a micromanager. Um, so he rides forwards and talks to these um, guards himself. Uh, most of his aides-de-camps, which are his assistant officers, they're nearly all um, killed or wounded at this point. And uh, he's riding around almost by himself, but he, he leads them forwards. And this is actually witnessed uh, by a Spanish general. Um, Spain's in the war, but they're obviously all the way down in the Pyrenees. Uh, but Miguel de Alava, who had actually fought uh, against the British at uh, Trafalgar, but before he became a general, he was a, uh, a sea captain. Uh, he um, he witnesses um, the battle just a little bit to the rear because he's kind of a almost like an official Spanish witness, a liaison, and he witnesses um, Wellington uh, doing this. At last, about seven in the evening, Bonaparte made a last effort and putting himself at the head of his guards, attacked the above point of the English position with such vigour that he drove back the Brunswickers who were occupied part of it. And for a moment, the victory was undecided, even more than doubtful. The Duke, who felt that the moment was most critical, spoke to the Brunswick troops with such ascendancy which every great man possesses and made them return to the charge and, putting himself at their head, again restored the combat, exposing himself to every kind of personal danger. Fortunately, at this moment, we received the fire of Marshal Blücher attacking the enemy's right with his usual impuosity, and the moment of decisive attack being come, the Duke put himself at the head of the English footguards, spoke a few words of them, which were replied with a general hurrah, and his grace himself guiding forward with his hat, they marched at the point of bayonets to come cl- to close action with the Imperial Guard, but the latter began a retreat, which was soon converted into a flight, and the most complete rout ever exhibited by soldiers. The famous rout at Vittoria was not even comparable to it. Zach, so where are we now? The Imperial Guard are broken, and th- these were elite troops in Napoleon's army. They were h- the ones that he used when he really needed to achieve a breakthrough. Um, they They had an incredible service record. They were paid more than the other troops. They were the most respected troops in the army, in the French army. And, and they broke. And again, there's debate about, is it the breaking of the Imperial Guard that causes the entire army to collapse? And the reality is more likely that it's a combination of things, because Wellington was able to see the opportunity of the Imperial Guard's retreat to order a general advance on his right flank at exactly the same time, however, the Prussians over on the Allied left flank were starting to really make headway and achieve a breakthrough, um, both on Wellington's left, but also at Plants Noir. And put together, the, uh, the Allied, the, um, sorry, Napoleon's army just crumples and the entire army routes. And then um, the, the, the Prussians follow it up. Wellington and Blucher meet outside the, the inn of La Belle Alliance. It's an image that's been captured quite a few times in some great prints and paintings. Um, they shake hands and, and if, in effect, 
Palooka says, look, I'll, I'll carry them from here. And when it, Napoleon's unable to, um, to rally the army, as he had initially hoped. Marcus, tell yeah. us about the moment where Wellington meets Blucher. So straight after the general advance, um, the French are on uh, full route uh, now, basically. And uh, well, no, even Napoleon actually has to flee, leaving his uh, baggage. And uh, at some point during that, he even uh, drops his sword and flees away even quicker. And uh, Wellington uh, follows the general advance, rides across the field. Uh, it's worth noting that just uh, at the point of the advance, actually, he was on his horse and uh, next to him was Uxbridge, his second in command, the commander of the cavalry corps. And a, a cannonball rips past both of them and a fragment of it. The, the French didn't use shrapnel at the time. It's a British-only uh, invention. But a fragment of it rips past both of them and takes off most of Uxbridge's uh, leg. Not all of it, a um, bit of the legs like hanging there. Uh, and there's a really famous exchange that's meant to have happened, which was, uh, by God, sir, I've lost my leg, Uxbridge said. And Wellington said, by God, sir, so you have. Which when Uxbridge fainted and uh, he was taken to the rear. That might be um, the most British thing I've ever heard. He's just literally going, yeah, so you have. Carry on. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if he's being sarcastic, but there's kind of like a slight dig going on there, though. And I know we, you and I talk about this a lot, Marcus, in terms of that relationship between Uxbridge, but there's bad mm. blood between them. And they had sort of resolved that, but Uxbridge had run off with um, Wellington's brother's wife. Yes. It was a massive it's scandal. Sure. And so I do wonder if there's just a little, and there's, there's no way of knowing this, and this is probably just my paranoia here, but I wonder if there's a little bit of kind of Wellington being ironic about it and thinking, oh yeah, karma for you. Oh, right, you have lost your leg. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly like that. But that's, so like that's the 19th me, century like. equivalent of going bothered. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> they, do, they do end up being um, good friends after the war, uh, and Uxbridge dines almost like one of the, the head, head of the table, uh, well, actually middle, uh, at Apsy House many times, and they know they, they actually do rekindle their friendship, but maybe it was literally born from that moment, uh, born in blood, a new friendship. Um, so Wellington actually advances pretty much by himself across the entire battlefield. Uh, nearly all of his ADCs, his aide de camp, and uh, his, his staff are wounded or killed, a huge amount of them. Uh, it's hard to estimate how many he had because he would have had upwards of 30 at any one time, but the majority of them are killed or wounded. Uh, it's not a safe place to be on a general staff uh, because Wellington is very much near the front. So he, he goes up and actually he manages to directly uh, run into uh, Blucher right by um, Napoleon's forward headquarters, La Belle Alliance, which is French for the Beautiful Friendship. And um, Blucher kind of agrees. Uh, he possibly hugs Wellington, but we're not quite sure. Definitely shakes his hands. And um, they agree that actually La Belle Alliance, Blucher thinks, is a really good name for the battle. Uh, a few other bits have said uh, there's not actually mutual language. Uh, Wellington speaks Spanish and French, um, but doesn't speak much German, and Blucher doesn't speak much English. And so they kind of agree that the Prussians are going to carry it on. They've got a few more fresh troops they can throw in, and they're going to carry it on. And uh, Wellington agrees that he needs to reform his army, and um, they hope he then rides back across this battlefield. And I was saying earlier, it's about three miles by two miles, depending on where you count. Within that area, you've now got over fifty thousand uh, men, and we know of at least about half a dozen women, but over 50,000 dead and dying, plus the horses and the broken guns and everything else amongst it. And it deeply affects Wellington. By the time he rides all the way back to the rear uh, town of Waterloo, which is an extra couple of miles uh, behind, 
he can't. He, he's been in the saddle uh, now for about 17 hours, uh, and he was up for three hours before that biting lesson. So he, he's absolutely exhausted. Um, first thing he sees is his um, table in his headquarters being used for an amputation. Uh, it's being uh, taken over. He can't even go and have um, a nap or a sleep because uh, one of his um, aides, Colonel Gordon, is dying in his bed. And uh, he knows Colonel Gordon is um, he's a good friend. Um, he manages to have a quick bit of dinner uh, with Miguel de Alaba, the Spanish liaison, because he was further back. And so uh, Miguel gets to hear the first kind of first-hand account of uh, the Duke of Wellington's opinion of the battle. At some point later, um, the Duke's personal surgeon brings in what they called the butcher's bill, the, the men of note, the senior generals, the, the sons of the aristocracy who had been confirmed as killed, and they bring it into the Duke. And he sees a lot of his friends, or a lot of his sons of his friends, a lot of men he's known and worked with for many years. And the surgeon notes that his face is covered in dust and he can see the tears running through the dust down his face and deeply, deeply affects the Duke. He says he'll never fight another battle again. He never does. And uh, we can talk about um, PTSD, but it's certainly um, like affected the Duke's mental health, that he's, he's seen enough dead and dying on that one day to last a man a lifetime, and he's already suffered through many years of campaigns, but that's enough. He, the Duke doesn't want to go on and fight more wars. He's certainly not lusting for more glory. Um, that is that has been it for him. Yeah, Zach, go ahead. Yeah, it's not the first time that Wellington's cried at the sight of um, the, the cost of war, though, is it? Because the, the famous no. one is Badahoff where um, he sees the, the carnage at the breaches where somewhere in the region of 4,000 men die in the taking of Badahoff. And, and he looks at um, this effectively mountain of dead British soldiers and, and Portuguese soldiers in the breaches as he kind of walks across the, the field. And he, he's just in tears about it. Yeah. I, one, something I, I really like about Wellington is I, he's... He's quite aloof at times, but he is relatable as a as a human being. Um, he's not some sort. He's not a narcissist. He's not a he's not a warmonger. He's not he's not just a little bit too eccentric as some of these generals are. He's quite relatable. He's come from a, an Irish family of lower aristocracy. He goes to school. He goes through normal career in the army, and he's seen some horrible things, and um, it it affects him. Uh, deeply and uh, I think he he understands the sacrifice that was made that day um, which is quite poignant. And what does he have to say about the battle afterwards? Um, Yeah so yeah he does the Duke doesn't like to talk about the battle very much because it's so harrowing uh, to him when he's pressed later in life he actually will only talk about uh, other battles and they say well let's talk about your famous victory and he says okay well a stay in India then. but he, he does write one or two letters, and there's a very famous one that he writes to one of his friends, uh, Lady Frances Shelley. While in the thick of it, I'm too much occupied to feel anything, but it is wretched just after. It is quite impossible to think of glory. Both mind and feelings are exhausted. I am wretched, even at the moment of victory, and I always say, next to a battle lost, the greatest misery is a battle gained. Not only do you lose those dear friends with whom you have been living, but you are forced to leave the wounded behind you. To be sure one tries to do the best for them, 
but how little that is. At such moments, every feeling in your breast is deadened. I'm now just beginning to retain my natural spirits, but I never wish for any more fighting. Um, Zach, what's the total cost of the battle? In terms of dead and wounded? Yeah. Uh, nobody really knows for sure, because lots of different figures get bandied around. And the one that I tend to fall on is around 60,000. Yeah, you um, mentioned that, didn't you? But, I mean, I've spoken to um, people who specialise in the medical care and they say actually 60,000 doesn't kind of really think about the longer term uh, butcher's bill in terms of um, people who die from their wounds, people who um, just end up disappearing and nobody really knows how they deserted, haven't they deserted. It's very hard to get definitive lists for the French army, which is mm. something that Marcus and I have been trying to do lately. Um, we can only really seem to find uh, the names of the officers, not soldiers for the French. And uh, when we're going through the British, um, I've noticed I've been doing a project for as that for Waterloo Remembered, and I'm finding a lot of names that say died of his wounds August, died of his wounds in December. There was even mm-hmm. one that died of his wounds in, in January 1816, so he had a very long lingering uh, death as well. So because of the medical care, um, the wounds are going to uh, really get into the system. I think it's infection is going to be the biggest problem, right? Infection, loss of blood. Absolutely. Some of these men, uh, they're noted. Uh, there's Colonel General Delancey, one of the Duke's quartermaster general. He's killed. And his, they think his ribs basically separate from his body internally because he's hit by a cannonball. But they decide that he's, uh, during his internal bleeding, that he's got too much blood, uh, bad blood, and they, they, they bleed him with the old scarifiers and leeches. So the medical care is just not um, adequate. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about Napoleon and his hemorrhoids earlier and how gross the treatment must have been. But to set that within context, you know, they don't have anaesthetics during this period. They're doing these amputations to a lot of men and they're awake. Um, And if they're lucky, they've got something to bite on so that they don't scream too loudly whilst it's happening. Um, The the hope is that a patient is going to faint in the middle of surgery, so they're not really aware of what happens. And in terms of disinfectant, the best they've got is salt. And you can imagine trying to, A, get hold of the quantities of salt that you would need to disinfect a wound. But what that would do if you actually tried to stick salt in somebody's wound. Um, I believe Uxbridge is given a shot of brandy because he's a a senior officer. And that's as good as they can get. Um, Guys, what do you think the legacy of Waterloo is? For, for me, it's huge. We, I would talk about the, the soldier sacrifice. And that's what's really foremost uh, on the 18th of June in, in my mind. Um, but then it has a huge um, cultural impact as well before the, I really want to go on to Zach's uh, was we uh, remembered, but mm-hmm. uh, it has a huge cultural impact. I mean, the Duke of Wellington's given about £400,000 uh, by the government to build a Waterloo Palace to rival Blenheim. It's meant to be actually eclipsed Blenheim. Uh, and he doesn't um, go through with that. He buys the land out in uh, North Hampshire, just outside of London. Uh, and he buys the land and commissions the architect, but doesn't go through with it. But he does buy Apsley House, uh, where I'm lucky enough to work, and uh, builds huge extensions onto that, has huge banquets. Every single monarch uh, during the Duke's uh, reign comes there, George IV, William IV, uh, Queen Victoria, and uh, Prince Albert. And the Duke becomes Prime Minister, actually, not once, but twice. And it was under um, the Duke's time as Prime Minister that Robert Peel um, founded uh, the Peelers and uh, does a lot of reforms. Everything's then named... Waterloo, you've got Waterloo Bridge, um, is built about two years later. So from Waterloo Station, 
through to um, Wellington in New Zealand and Waterlooville down in Hampshire, towns and cities are named after him. Uh, it has a deep impact upon the British Army's psyche of, of victory, um, though it isn't obviously an Allied victory, um, but the British Army hold it high. Uh, even today, you've got regiments like Scottish Guards have the eagle that they captured on their uh, cap badge. And it's rightly so lauded because it brings in about 40 years of relative peace in Europe, uh, peace and prosperity. So um, they've never seen that length of peace in most of men and women's lifetimes, really. They've been at war with France for such a long, long time. But Wellington goes on to do uh, amazing things. I mean, he's warden of the Sink Ports. He dies down at Warmer Castle, which is an old title, but it gives him the residence of Warmer Castle. Uh, he's High Constable of England, which means he oversees the three coronations of George, William and, and Queen Victoria. Uh, he's Queen Victoria's closest, almost, advisor. And there's, a, there's an amazing quote when he dies of Queen Victoria saying that England's never seen such a great man and such a loyal subject to the crown and we'll never see his like again. Um, so when we talk in terms of how great is the Duke of Wellington, Queen Victoria thinks he's the greatest, and that's always, yeah. um, you know, a bit of a bit of a seal. Um, but so he goes on. Um, you know, I, I'm very lucky that I work in Apsley House and see his art collection. Uh, he, he loves the art and opera, and he um, hosts a lot of banquets and sees pretty much every monarch and ambassador from around Europe. And really, kind of helps set the wheels in motion for um, a new piece. Zach, talk to us about your project because if people want to hear more about Waterloo. You've um, put a phenomenal effort into the commemoration this year and people, with Marcus has been helping you as well, but you have literally knackered yourself. So people can trot over to your podcast, <laughs> can't they? So tell us what your Waterloo commemoration is and what they can expect to hear. Yeah, see, for me, I uh, everything that Mar- I, Marcus has said, I completely agree with right down to the, the justification of why there are statues of Wellington and why this idea of them being on the hit list is so puzzling. Because yes, he was out in India, Yes, he was under orders to fight a colonial um, campaign of conquest, but he's under orders. And it's not him who individually set the British government's agenda out in India. Um, so, as you say, we, we could discuss that another day and, and do it to death. But with, with Waterloo Remembered, um, it's been a, a big kind of project that developed out of the fact that we can't do the standard things that people do to commemorate Waterloo. Normally every mm-hmm. year out on the battlefield, there are reenactments and, and people, you know, gather at memorials and hold services and so on. And we just can't do that because of coronavirus and the need to socially distance. So th- there've been a few um, strands to it. One has focused quite a lot on legacy and looking at lots of different sections of that. So like the political legacy, the social legacy. I did uh, 10 interviews with experts from many different countries on a whole range of topics from soldier life to archaeology to um, the the longer-term impacts of, of the conflict, the common myths, um, and they've been going out over the last fortnight. There's also something that's been a bit like your Dunkirk project that mm-hmm. you did recently, Voices from the Battlefield, where I had 41 people, again, men and women from around the world, some just enthusiasts, others reenactors, um, some historians, who've come together and recorded uh, extracts of memoir testimony um, and letters and diaries from people who were there so that we can hear both the soldier perspective from the many different nationalities who fought at Waterloo, but also the civilian perspective, because it's important to remember that the civilians were stuck back in Brussels, desperately waiting for for news. And so that's um, 
that's been played out. The reason why there are 41 is because it's one for every five years since Waterloo, if people are wondering why that particular number. Um, and I've also been doing live tweets through my, my Twitter account, uh, Z-Y History. Um, and Marcus has been helping me with all of that and putting together this role of honour um, that we're doing, which is a bit of a surprise for people. By the time this goes out, it'll be live, but uh, we've been keeping that under wraps. Um, and it's all available for free at the, on the podcast Napoleonicest. So tell us where they can get to that podcast. Absolutely anywhere you like, actually, because it's on Spotify and Anchor and Apple and Google and a whole load of others that I can't even remember what the names are. Um, but essentially, if you Google the Napoleonicest, one way or another, you should be able to find it. But the okay. easiest way to get to it, if you're not on Spotify or Apple, is to just go into Anchor FM and find it that way. And your Twitter handle is at Zed White History. And Marcus, yours is? Uh, M Crib History. And that crib with two Bs. Two Bs in the crib. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for coming on and giving us an overview of the Battle of Waterloo. Um, I'm really okay. excited to go and listen to uh, what you've put together in more detail as well. But I think for our purposes, just to give people an idea of what happened on that day and the scale of it, um, it's been fantastic. So thank you. Absolute pleasure. Join us tomorrow. Um, so we've spent the last week talking about not projecting our 21st century morality and terminology onto the past. But how does that work when you've researched something like the history of people with disabilities? Chris Mounsey and Wendy Turner from University of Winchester and Augusta University in the US, respectively, join forces to come and talk to us about how you do it. Specifically, we're going to be looking at sight impairment and mental health, but we do touch on a lot more. And we talk about what it's like trying to recreate the experience of people in the past who suffered from disabilities and how they were perceived at the time. It is so interesting, so don't miss that. And then at completely the other end of the intellectual spectrum, join us down the pub tomorrow night. We are looking for history's most epic death scene. Uh, If there's one thing we do well, it's laughing and cackling at people's misfortune in history. So join us for that. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower, and I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you, Ben. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.